Well, hello and welcome to this uh, Quirkus and Sunday Times Crime Club podcast, which is devoted to talking about the work of the great thriller writer Philip Kerr, who uh, wrote the Bernie Gunther thriller series and who sadly died a year ago this month. And I'm joined here to um, talk about Phil's remarkable achievements uh, with his widow, Jane Thin, who is a um, novelist in her own right, having written eight books, eight novels. And the last one, um, called Solitaire, uh, which came out in 2016, is a wartime thriller with an Anglo-German called Clara as heroine. And um, also with me here today, we're very lucky to have um, Abir Mukherjee, whose first Sam Wyndham book, A Rising Man, appeared to much acclaim in 2016. The fourth in the series is um, out later this year. And I would say that Abir does for the Raj what Phil did for the Reich, which is that they take a real time in history, in in Abir's case, the Indian Raj after the First World War, and combine fact and fiction into a thrilling format with a great, memorable hero at its heart. And also, we're very lucky to have here today Peter Miller, who um, is an award-winning journalist, um, particularly on Europe and Eastern Europe, and also author of several thrillers and translator of the German wartime Hamburg set thrillers or post-war Hamburg set thrillers by Kai Rademacher. And Peter knows all things German, history, politics, current events, and what it's like to be followed by the Stasi. So uh, that's, our, that's our group today. So I think we're going to have a fantastic uh, conversation and find out a lot we didn't know about the great Phil Kerr. So Jane, I'm going to start by asking you that um, there are 14 Bernie Gunther books. Unfortunately, Metropolis, the which is coming out um, any day now, is obviously sadly the last. But Phil and, and Bernie Gunther is the wonderful, wisecracking, good man in a horrible world, very un-German, German cop at the heart of them all. But when um, Phil started, he wrote three books in in the Gunter series, which are now known as the Bernie Gunter trilogy, March Violets, Pale Criminal and A German Requiem, between 89 and 91. And then there was a gap until 2006, before all the others came. Why was, was that? There was a gap. Um what happened with Philip was that he was he was a born writer and he'd been writing since probably the age of 11. Um, but as with all novelists, it, sometimes it takes a, a while to actually find the thing that you really want to write about. And so it was with him that when he um, came down to London from university and he was working in, in advertising, um, he was leaving the office during his very long lunch hour, as it was then, this was the 1980s, and going off to the London Library and writing a series of novels. And he wrote about three novels, which he called his Young Man in London novels, which were, um, you know, put away in a drawer. Nothing nothing came of them. And eventually he, he, 
had a little reckoning and he thought, I've got to work out what would combine the things I'm interested in. He was interested in detective fiction. He was very interested in 20th century history, particularly Germany, and what would make a good novel. And he came across... um, this idea, which he always thought was was the central idea of what he does, which is the idea of somebody investigating a crime, sometimes a small crime, sometimes you know, a murder, against the biggest crime of the century, which was the Holocaust. And um, something about this kind of um, tickled him in a very dark way. He thought this was... Um, an interesting idea to have a cop who was actually investigating things that went on in Nazi Germany. And, and so he wrote March Violets, and um, that was the first of the Berlin Noir trilogies. But then, as you say, there was this great long gap. Um, he, he wasn't the kind of person that just wanted to write the same thing forever and ever. He put it away, and he wanted to do different thrillers. And um, he, did, he said, I'm going to kill Bernie, actually. He said to me when he had written the third... And I remember saying, look, don't kill him. Think of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, keep him alive. And he said, all right, I'll keep him, I'll keep him alive, you know, and, um, which he did. But he didn't intend to go back. And then over the period of sort of a decade, he thought about it more and more. And he thought, yeah, actually, I might go back. Before we talk about the writing, I'd like to talk about the research. And Abir, I think you you have done an awful lot of historical work research into your period, the British Raj after the First World War. And now you tell me that your next book, you're going back to um, pre-war Britain. But the trick is to, well, the trick, the skill, the talent, the genius is to know all the facts but then tell us a story. And how, how do you how do you how do you feel you've done that and to, and um, and Phil did that? Well, I have to start by saying you know Philip Philip Kerr was one of my heroes. Um, I wouldn't write what I write today if I hadn't come across the Bernie Gunter novels. Oh, it must be close to about twenty years ago now. Probably probably just a bit under that, but seventeen eighteen years ago, I picked up um, March Violets. And it it spoke to me in a way that no other crime novel has done. Um, I think, you know, for me, the Bernie Gunter character, this idea of a good man upholding a system that he doesn't believe in, um, is something that fascinated me when I picked it up. And, and, you know, when I later, many years later, came to write um, about the British in India, it was it was because of Philip Kerr's body of work that I was able to write what I write. Um, I, I, I think Philip was the, was the successor to Raymond Chandler, but I think Bernie Gunter is a, is a wittier, more rounded character than Philip Marlowe. And, and to me, he, he is at the pinnacle of crime fiction, uh, historical crime fiction. He taught me that you know, facts are as interesting as fiction. If you do it right, if you can get the nuggets of history, and it's not, it's not the huge facts that he went for, it was the, it was the wee details that pointed, you know, that, that were really sharp. It was these arrows of detail that he would stud his work with um, that made you think. And when you have this character, when you have a character as, a character bearing his soul in the way that Bernie Gunther does, allied to the very light touch research, he had so much information, but he doesn't throw it at you. He puts it in in little, little, you know, almost diamonds of, of factual information that 
are missed by the broad sweep of history. It's the little details, it's the personal details that he brought into his work. And he made them personal to Bernie. And I think that's what made it work so beautifully. Um, that's what I try and do um, with, with Sam. Um, like Bernie, Sam is a, a survivor of the First World War. And I think in many ways, Sam is who he is because I had the benefit of reading the Bernie Gunter novels. Um, I think the war sort of created this first generation of modern men who are no longer just willing to accept what they're told by their superiors. Um, Bernie is a cynic, and I think Sam is a cynic because of that as well. Um, so for me, the research is important, but I think what, what, what Philip also did was he played with those gaps in the history. Um, where we have the broad brush, he played in the spaces between those the facts that we knew. He could build his stories... Um, in those spaces. So we have this great um, book a few years ago um, set in Berchtesgaden and there are some fantastic facts there. I mean, I had no idea of the two Borman brothers, but he builds his story in that gap in history and to me, that's a real skill. And that that one was, I mean, we should say it now, he was a very funny writer. Absolutely. It's definitely. And the Berchtesgaden where um, they're all off their heads on speed the uh, whole time. Yeah. I mean, what a great fact. Absolutely. And he made that into, it was just fascinating. He loved the humour, the, the humour, he had a very strong sense of irony. And uh, we would, he would often say things like, um, I think it's Lady from Zagreb begins with um, an international police conference in the middle of the war. You just think, and he said, I can't believe that this was happening. Actually, in the Vansey House, which is where we know that the Vansey conference was was held, um, that there would be a kind of international police conference. The things like that, the kind of like extreme ironies that, that surround Nazi Germany were things that just leapt out to him. But um, the, yes, the, the, the um, thriller set in the Berg, um, round the Berghof was, was um, again, fascinating. I, we went to research it, or he was researching it, and I was having a look too, and um, it was just astonishing. It's astonishing and kind of awful in equal measure that you go up on the um, on the Salzburg and there's these beautiful little kind of chalet-style houses and one belonged to Speer and one belonged to Hess, and then you go down, particularly under where... Um, there was an SS house right next to the Berghof and it's, the whole mountain is riddled with tunnels and the tunnels have prisons in them and the prisons are windowless underground cells and the shudder that you get, the difference between this sort of um, gemütli, um scenery and the, the SS prisons underneath sort of symbolised everything. So, so yes, I mean, it's replete with humour, though. And the Nazis, of course, um, they, had, they, they disappeared and just ran for it and leaving everything, but the Americans were, of course, in the final stages of the war, convinced that actually something that should have been in one of Phil's novels if he'd been doing fantasy, that Hitler was going to be holed up in, in the Berghof and the mountains surrounded and there was going to be some sort of Valkyrie last stand. But in fact, when they got it, they blew the whole thing up and lost everything in the end. The only thing that you can actually see, as I'm sure you went up, is the um, the tea house, which is right up on a pinnacle, which is often called Eagle's Nest, which is completely wrong. But um, it was Barton Bowman built it for Hitler's birthday, and Hitler went up twice 
The only time because he, he didn't like heights. He didn't like the lift. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't, like lift. He didn't and also, he didn't like heights. I, he, you know, he could be up on a mountain. Like it's a bit like my own fear of heights, which is fine if I'm on a mountain. But if there's a building connected with it, I suddenly get scared. The most scary place in the world, actually, is Strasbourg Cathedral because they only built one tower, and so you got this this cathedral, and there's one tower soaring above you, and on the other there's a little pink bungalow where they sell postcards, <laughs> and it's the most disconcerting thing in the world to look up at this building and look down at the huge drop. But the interesting thing about Berghof was that one bit is preserved perfectly well, very much like the SS prisons, but it's hidden. Um, the, the, the Americans just didn't find it because it's under a little small hotel um, on the outskirts of the Berghof, and you have to go down about 100 metres down the hill. And if you ask the lady who owns it, can you go around, she'll charge you four euros, and you get to wander around the bit. It's, it's not any of Hitler's rooms, but it's, it's the defensive structure around the side of it. Well, it's now becoming that that, that that whole mountain compound is now becoming much more touristic, and yeah, um, yeah. it's a, particularly Americans like going up. The, fu- the very funny thing about the Americans having blown blown up all the um, the Berghof is that all the American troops that went in there took souvenirs. So Philip. Um, benefited from this in that he was endlessly being sent little things like <laughs> we've got Hitler's knives at home <laughs> 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 American ex-servicemen who would send him presents. And I mean, it's not like he was interested in collecting Nazi memorabilia, but it just came our way. because <laughs> 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 he was a vegetarian. So <laughs> 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 he didn't really need, didn't need <laughs> knives. Nice, I think no. he had, you know, we've got his cutlery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's something. But, um, I, well, I was going to ask you, yes, so could Phil speak German, read German? Um, yeah. He could get by. He yeah. could get by, and he had also done um, an MA in German jurisprudence, which well, <laughs> that came in handy. <laughs> sounds incredibly hefty, but so yes, but he could get by, and um, he. I think more than anything, actually, he also had some German sensibility in a way. He felt very close <coughs> to the Germans, and um, so yeah, he felt very at home in Berlin. But Bernie, we um, was saying he's not anyone's idea of a German, is he? He's he's more your Philip Marlowe. He's not a Brit, definitely. Um, what, what do you think, Abbe? He... Well, he's, he's an outsider. Yeah. He's the, um, the quintessential outsider that I think some of the best detectives are. And, and I think that possibly reflects on Mr Kerr's background himself. He, I think he felt an outsider um, in the same way that I feel an outsider, uh, in that, you know, we're both from Scotland, but we have... Other parts of our our makeup, shall we say, and and I think when you when you when you are an outsider, you can point out the hypocrisies. You've you've hit on the very I would say very central tenet of his identity as a writer, which is he always felt that he didn't. He grew up in nineteen sixties Edinburgh. He was kind of dark. He was very dark, olive skinned, and he was tormented at school for not being kind of red haired and having freckles. And um, so, one place where, where where not being ginger is not an advantage. <laughs> it's true. And he's always felt that um, he felt an outsider, and he would always reference this as as actually what had spurred him both into writing and into writing this character that he didn't feel he belonged in the land of his home and um, that he understood what it was like to feel slightly out of kilt. Exactly the same to you, so it's very interesting you say that. It's a different thing too. It's funny because one of the reasons why I don't think I've ever been a tremendously good novelist is that um, I, I do assimilate very quickly. 
And um, having actually been born in the north of Ireland, and of course it was a society which itself just, if you didn't fit in with one side or the other, it just threw you out. And I was thrown out very early, and I'm a linguist, and so I started living in Germany and then indeed in France, sort of completely, but lo- I became a local. And that meant I couldn't take that distant standpoint from it that would enable me, I would, I would too much identify with the characters um, that I was trying to write about. And I became them and they became me and they just got confused. Which is unique because <laughs> the template of a thriller is very often that you have something like a totalitarian society and you have an individual that slips through the cracks and that whether it's kind of um, Henry VIII's court or the, like the Hunger Games or something, you just need an individual that doesn't it's, conform. It's, it's very funny because the the, um, the Kai Rademacher handbook trilogy, they're the, the main character who's um, now a, a detective inspector, which is of course a new term which the British have brought in. And he, they didn't have detective inspectors or anything like And he feels a bit of an alien too because on the one hand, a lot of the superiors are still undiscovered ex-Nazis and he knows who they are, but he doesn't want to um, point them out because they'd still be dangerous. And on the other hand, whereas he totally identifies with the occupying forces as being a good thing, every now and then he remembers just how many children they bombed to death. And uh, when, when they, they say, oh, we need to worry about this, you know, Hamburg had it coming, he's going, mm. there's a lot of tongue-biting going on, very sort of in between the two characters, in between the two worlds, rather. I just, sorry, but when you were talking about um, uh, writers like, um, uh, had the same style as, I think Robert Harris actually has an awful lot in common in some ways, um, in, in, the, in the sort of depth of description and not, not the same sense of humour, mm-hmm. but the same idea of um, put, dropping little uh, facts into things. And I think but that, a different mm-hmm. writing style, because I think if, if we were talking about Philip's writing style, I think what um, it is very apparent about it is the, the, the brilliance of the metaphor, his gift for metaphor, which he did, he was a student of Chandler, I mean he, he loved Chandler before he wrote Bernie and he he could see that that was the style of writing that he was going to um, exemplify and I think the, the greatest joy of reading his books is is in lies in the metaphors. Um, Absolutely, and the, I mean there's two, we could sit here quoting them all day but there's a wonderful one in um, Metropolis where uh, someone turns to Bernie, in fact, and they've seen some hideous scene or whatever, and they're having cynical cop talk, and he says, you're so hard, you could ice skate on you. <laughs> Brilliant. That's very Chandler-esque. <laughs> yeah, very, but very, very Phil. I, I did think that um, March Violets, which I think we've all, I think for all of us, when we read it, it was like, whoa, here comes something fantastic. And what I loved about it was, one well, of the many things, was that, he was unapologetically Chandler-esque or Marlowe-esque. And there was no kind of pretending about it. It was very much a kind of showing that that's what he was. But And also that the jokes and the quips and the images and the wordplay wouldn't have worked in German. They were purely... Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this is... Well, this is reminding us this is fiction. This is a work of creativity and fiction based as it was in and he does so many um you know the big characters of the war and the minor characters which obviously the research for that must be incredibly um convoluted and um hard to get at but the one character he never describes or meets is hitler so we're circling all the way through in you know, there's all, all the other big big dogs of the Nazis are there. But 
and and I think that was probably a and it's not because he's a timid writer. I mean, he does a brilliant um, no, Somerset no, Maugham, for example, mm-hmm. in um, uh, Somerset Maugham, um in Prussian Blue. Was it in Prussian Blue? Yeah. Or was it, yeah. And you know, he's not scared of taking on anything or anyone, but we don't get the face-to-face with Hitler. We don't. It's the other side of silence, actually. Well, you um, can't, yes. Uh, he always said, I will never do Hitler. I will always do the other characters and I won't do Hitler. And I think partly it was because to actually um, do Hitler might risk taking away from the um, immensity that was Hitler, the horror of Hitler, um, He's hard to tackle. I mean, in a way, that's why we're all interested in Downfall and the mm. um, that, that fascinating film, because they finally did tackle him. But he's incredibly hard to tackle. And it was a golden rule for him. He was never going to do that. Very hard to do a monster. Um, I mean, it's very hard to even well, make... He did lots of monsters. Uh, monster in the the I think it was just a golden rule. He and just it's, wasn't going to do it. It was not just a monster in Germany, but I mean, obviously, not, not even first a monster in Germany. He's a global monster. And particularly the um, Anglo-Saxon language has... A, and it, I mean, it's a different monster in Russian. I mean, he's a much worse mm. monster. Um, but because of the, there was a certain attempt of... Um, in this post-war period, everyone so much fell in love, but if it's a black love, with the Goebbels, um, uh, the uniforms and the swastikas. And the, but, I mean, what most people write, it's really only in the German world, is Hitler talked funny. Hitler came from Austria. Hitler, when Hitler said, you know, do, do you want total war? He said, what you did to Tallenkrieg? And he did Berliners just fell apart. It was like someone coming down in, in England that they'd been in equipment saying, Do you lads want total war then? Why doves? I mean, Hitler had this ridiculous accent. Berliners, and it worked in, worked in Bavaria, where it started. It worked in Austria, it goes a little bit up to central Germany. But once you get to Berliners, because Berliners are talking like this, are You know, because they're South Londoners, and he says, You want total war, my boys? And it's just, it's just a, Berlin never voted any way uh, large scale for Hitler. Well, that's yeah. And that's a great sort of um, introduction into the new book, which is centred on Berlin and Berliners yes. and, and their attitudes towards the Nazis and towards Hitler. And and as you say, it was, you know... Although so there were some, you know, vociferous fans as well. I mean, the, the full range is covered. And of course, you also Absolutely. see the, the anti-Semitism. Because the new book, we should say, takes Bernie back to his youth. Does it? Bernie is a sort of fresh... Well, he's... So, Well, he's sort of fresh-faced. He's a a veteran of the First World War. Physically unscathed, psychologically maybe less so. All described in ways that we wouldn't describe it now. I mean, they didn't have PTSD, you know. But but he's, you know, and, and he's part of a whole generation walking around like that. And you see right from the very beginning of, um, you know, the Bernie, which they go backwards and forwards, war, post-war, pre-war. But, um, that, you know, the anti-Semitism is starting, or it's always been there. It's becoming more prominent, and that's a theme throughout, isn't it? It's very uh, it's very interesting. I mean, it's sort of, I suppose, um, I would say almost poignant that um, Philip had already been diagnosed with um, terminal cancer by the time he came to start this book. And so he knew, um, and he was um, incredibly brave, and he knew he was going to die. Um, but he uh, started writing this book and, um, and indeed obviously finished it. And when we were talking about this, we did. I did say, look, you're, you know you're dying and why don't you have an ageing Bernie who is going to die and you can really sort of channel that into the book. 
And um, he said, you know, not in a million years. Um, this was utterly unphilip, he said, who actually felt completely invincible despite the fact staring at him in the face, never completely believed it at all. And he said, no, I'm doing a young Bernie, you know, he's starting out. So I think that was um, absolute testament to the fact that he, he was this kind of... Um, he had the same sense of invincibility that Bernie Gunter has. He was in many ways interchangeable with Bernie Gunter. And he felt, um, you know, you know, sod them. You know, they might say, you know, this is the end of me, but just sod them and I'm going to do an, an early Bernie. So this is the earliest Bernie we get, set in 1928. And um, he's just become a murder detective. And uh, he was, um, and so he's in the streets of Weimar, Germany. It's it's fascinating, and some of the I mean, it makes Cabaret look like Beatrix Potter, really, doesn't it? Some, some of the <coughs> the nightlife that went on in Berlin at that time. But it's a very interesting period of history in Berlin, oh, yeah. and um, I'm looking forward very much to reading this book because it's his first pre-Nazi era yeah. book, and um, it was really was a time that um, things were just falling apart, and an awful lot of that uh, decadence that we see yeah. like in Cabaret, for example, was partly because everybody knew it was going to end soon, and there was a, an, an early feeling that this was going to change radically, and I think for Bernie to have been uh, into the police suddenly realising what the hell the police are going to become. Um, and yes. when I say what the hell, I mean literally hell, because um, and there were a lot of police who gradually got, got kicked out of it. And, and funnily enough, it's seen almost the other end of it, because um, I knew East Germans who had been in the embassy and even in, in the Volkspolizei, the People's Police in East, East Germany, and they were, in, up until the fall of the war, they were demonised. People talk about the People's Police, you know, they were awful. But actually, after the war fell, they realised that when Berlin was unified, we need more police. And um, we haven't got enough to do East Berlin as well, so they actually took them all in. And it was the equivalent of denazifying, they decommunised them. And about 40% of the police force actually went on to remain in the police force in, in a unified Germany. Obviously, the ones who were political police were chucked out. And, and in fact, one of them I know now runs a, a garden centre in, in <laughs> East Germany. You know, and actually, as a, he doesn't run it, he works in a garden centre. So a lot of people fell and a lot of people carried on. Well, there's a curious longevity about Nazis, isn't there? I mean, they nearly always lived to 98 in Bavaria and you kind of, <laughs> they're still yeah. wandering around. But, and this is what keeps Bernie's post-war career mm -hmm. going, which, yeah. which is in many ways totally fa even more fascinating because it takes him to places that you'd never think these storylines would go to and and I did think that um it at the end of um Greeks Bearing Gifts which was the book that came out last year that it gave to me and I got really really excited it gave a very strong hint that Bernie's next adventure or a future adventure might be working with the Nazi hunters of Israel, the newly formed Israel. And I thought, I can't wait for that. And, well, it's, it didn't happen. Do you, th yeah. do you think that was what he intended? With yeah, the, with no, he was very interested in that. Mm. Watched a lot of films about Mossad and things. Yeah, so definitely. <sighs> well. <laughs> um, no, certainly. So we'll have to imagine that. But um, I, think, I think he, um, for any of your listeners who are, writers or interested in writing for me one of the things about Philip um, was that he was immensely instructive in his attitude as a writer um, he was you 
you referred to the fact that he was unapologetic about being Chandler-esque, and I think being unapologetic is actually the centre of him, that he didn't, he was utterly bold about what he did, and he didn't see any need, need to kowtow to contemporary opinion in any way, um, which, which is a great strength. And he actually, in his later years, uh, used to say, um, occasionally get a bad review, and he'd say, no, um, he would occasionally get a bad review, and he'd heard something David Hockney said when somebody gave David Hockney a bad review, and David Hockney said, it's not what the critic thinks, it's what I think that matters. <laughs> Um, but it loved this. He loved repeating this. <laughs> and, uh, but he he kind of believed it. And um, I think that that is the nature of a, of an actual artist that you do believe in yourself. And it's great um, advantage for him that he had enormous self confidence. There's a wonderful um, passage at the end of um, Pale Criminal, which um, I've I've also it's the most um, incredibly moving passage where he's the crime is all sewn up and you know Nazi Germany is getting on with its with its own things and he walks into the botanical gardens and there's a gardener um, there's a great pile of dead leaves and the gardeners are shoveling more and more leaves onto this bonfire and the ash and there's a diaspora of ash and it sounds even saying this um, me saying this it sounds crass but the way that he renders it is beautiful because it is obviously a, um, a a pre um, foreshadowing of of what will happen later, and you know he he sees the piles of leaves and they never seem to go down and there's more and more of them and the ash goes all over the city and it's a wonderful just a single paragraph but it's incredibly moving and um, that was his second that was the second burning yeah so he's but most but actually I would say that's a, that's unusual. The things that really you remember, the funny things, aren't they? I mean, the, the funny things are the wonderful things. The funny things, the... Acerbic wit is just... The acerbic wit, the terrible characters, real Nazis and made-up ones, are... They, they make a world, don't they? Gunther world. And it's been a massive pleasure for all of us, I think, to enjoy these. And anyone who hasn't read all these books, what a treat you all have coming. And so um, thank you very much to Peter Miller, Abhir Mukherjee, Jane Finn for um, joining me for this wonderful conversation about Philip Kerr, who died last year on March 23rd. His new book, Metropolis, is out in early April, and we've all really enjoyed remembering him and learning so much more about his writing and his genius. Thank you. Uh, thank you.